We're back. We're back. It's distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How are you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I uh, I am tired. I I worked in San Francisco all weekend, and I walked. Like I did the thing where, like I I logged a lot of steps, and I was so impressed by my own step count that like I took a screenshot of it and like sent it to people. Like nice. oh, it's like 30,000 steps. How about that? I am I am the longest walk man. Best in the world. We had that. We were remembering recently. My wife and I, uh, having been to San Francisco, I think it was for around my thirtieth birthday, and I was not capable of like making rudimentary plans for a vacation at that point. I was like, I'd really like to eat a taco at some point in the next six days, and that was like basically as yeah, structured I as I was able to get it. But I remember that. Th- it's a dumb city to walk around in because I'd be like, it's just six blocks. And then yep. those six blocks They're are vertical, verti- entirely vertical. And you uh, yeah, fucking so like, crampons and yep. an ice axe to go. <laughs> so that was like beyond the fact that I had like disappointed my wife by not game planning all of our meals because I was like basically incapable of supporting myself as a person at that point. It was also like I we both had like shin splints after two days. So I hope that you at least iced down. Talking about this reminds me of the protagonists of the book. That our guest has written, our guest today, it's David Grant, staff writer of The New Yorker, author of four books, and honestly, for my money, one of the greatest magazine writers we've ever had. David's latest book, The Wager, is out in stores now, and we're going to ask him about that and a great many other things. Welcome to the show, David Grant. It's great to be on the show at last. Are you ready for me to try to summarize your book as best I can? And then yes, you'll probably do it better than me. Most people do. I kind of just meander on. My wife is always like, cut it. Come on. You can sum it up. (laughs) Before we do that, do you want to tell any stories about walking too much? Or should we just get right to the interesting (laughs) stuff? (laughs) Yeah, no, no. I'll just take the, uh, I would take the trolley. (laughs) Uh, For those unfamiliar with the book, I'm going to give you a brief summary. The Wager is about a British naval vessel called the wager, how appropriate, that was sent in 1742 to intercept a Spanish galleon during one of the 500 wars that England and Spain waged against one another. But the wager got into a shipwreck with much of the crew dying and the survivors split into essentially rival factions who would confront one another both on the sea and back home in England when they all, or I shouldn't say all of them, when many of them miraculously survived. (laughs) When 10% of them For this book, you had to do a whole lot of research, including going to the very island where several of these crew members themselves were marooned. How was that trip for you? Like, how did you organize that trip? What did it cost? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I I spent the first two years just doing research in archives, um, researching what had happened on that expedition how they had battled storms and scurvies and then got shipwrecked. And after about two years in this archives, which anyone who knows me knows that's where I really belong, um, you know, I started to have that gnawing doubt, you know, what don't I know about the story? Can I fully understand what happened on that island? And so that's when I decided, well, okay, well, why don't I try to go to Wager Island? And, um, you know, not the easiest place to get to. And no. <laughs> um, not and an Expedia. I can't. Yeah, so, it on Expedia. so the first thing I had to do, you know, this is probably a little too much. I tried to get a fixer who could help me uh, try to find a boat and a captain. And eventually we located somebody in Chile who had a well, initially they had sent us a boat, his boat. Um, and it looked pretty big in photographs. So I was very confident this would be fine. Um, and yeah, exactly. Oh, and then after about, it took about four days to get there. And, you know, we had to fly to Florida, then to Santiago. Well, I flew to Florida, Santiago. Then I had to fly south of Chile. Then I had to take a car and a ferry. And then eventually I got to Chiloé Island, which is about 
350 miles north of, of Wager Island, off the coast of Chile and Patagonia. Um, and when I took one look at the boat, I was like, ah, that was not exactly the boat uh, in my photographic tree. So it was, it was a nice boat, but it was just very small. It was heated by a wood stove. Um, very artisanal. Very yes, nice. very, very top heavy. And, uh, you know, I got my first, well, I should have been warned off early enough about the trip because Wager Island is located in what is known as um, the Gulf of Sorrows or some call it the Gulf of Pain. So that should have been my first sign that maybe this was the wise wisest. No, it wasn't named ironically. It's not like beautiful. <laughs> like, ah, it's a Gulf of pain. Uh. Well, this is one of the things that's great about the that whole description, because this is the like the greater Cape Horn experience, is that like all of the names that ex- seem to be in, you know, currency there are like from 300 years ago. And it's sailors remembering the time that all their homies died there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all like really the bit that I like, too, is that one of so they all have those dramatic names. But then there's also one island at the when you begin to enter the uh, sort of Cape Horn that's just called Staten Island. Which yes, I yeah. found delightful, <laughs> like just to sort of be like abandoned all hope. Uh, it's, like this. it's strangely better than the other Staten Island, which is a <laughs> yeah. real upset. You know, I, I use the Spanish names so there'd be no confusion. The uh, yes, it's uh, yeah. The islands are like the island of deceit, the island of blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really they are you know, just the the names. Just putting that into kayak.com and seeing what comes up. <laughs> Was it hard to sell your your wife on that? Where you're like, listen for this book. I have to traverse the Gulf of Pain. Go say Wager <laughs> Island know, where a bunch of sailors died. Was she yeah, like, uh, okay. My wife is used to me by now. You know, she, she's like, you know, when I, I had for the Lost City of Z, where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go try to hump through the Amazon and chase an explorer who had vanished like half nearly a century before the ghost of him. Uh, if she could put up with this, she could, she could deal with Wager Island. She, <laughs> Honey, I'm going to go find a dead body. Yeah, yes, I'm looking for a ghost in the middle of the Amazon. <laughs> that sounds nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and for anyone who knows me, I'm I, you know I I'm a little like Magoo. You know, that, that's probably an outdated reference for most people. But when I was growing up, Magoo was a comic character. It was on TV, and he was kind of blind and just would end up in situations somehow miraculously survive and not be like run over by a bus or a car. And I, I never think of these expeditions. I'm always just thinking of like, oh, okay, I have to go here and I got to get there. And so I just kind of focus on that. I actually never think about it necessarily as this kind of expedition in a way. I'm just like, okay, I got to find a boat. All right, now I got a boat. I got to get a captain. Um, but I should have, when we got to uh, Chile Island, we were trapped on the island uh, because it was so, the weather was so rough the Coast Guard had closed the port, which I actually didn't know they did that. I, I kind of thought if you wanted to, you know, commit suicide at sea, you just could go. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Good luck. Yeah, just like bon voyage, you know, that if you're a fool, you can go be a fool. Uh, but they had actually shut down the port. So no boats were allowed out. So I just stayed on that boat for about four days. And, you know, I kept thinking, oh, I've got a return flight. What am I ever going to even get out of here? And the captain just kept saying, I just need a... Uh, you know, a clear window, we'll get across this Gulf and we'll be okay. And then I think it was about the fourth day, I think it was the fourth day in the morning at dawn, the Coast Guard let us out. We slipped across this Gulf, which was pretty rough, but then we tucked into these channels of Patagonia, which are shielded from the ocean. There are all these islands and islets. We didn't really see a soul for days or another boat. Uh, After the first day, we didn't see another boat for days, Um, but it was really chillingly beautiful. It's very shielded from the ocean. Uh, and protected. But after about five days of this, and we would stop to get wood, you know, we'd 
high up to these islets and they cut down trees so we could heat our 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 boat because you know it was freezing it was winter time and we would take water from these glacial streams we'd hook up a hose and bring them into the boat did it taste good the, it, the water was beautiful. It was crystal clear, but for showering, it was brutal. I mean, it Ooh. was it was the coldest shower I've ever taken. I just and I wouldn't really call it a shower. It was like a squirt on your head for two seconds that would just keep you awake for a week. Um, and uh, but after a week, he's like, "All right, well, now we got to go out into the ocean if we're going to get to Wager Island." And uh, that's when I got my first glimpse of these lovely seas. Uh, so, were there moments on that trip? First of all, were there moments where you said to yourself, "Okay, this sucks." And then were you able to sort of fathom how the wagers crew was able to survive in those seas for as long as they did with no modern amenities, not even a gas stove like you had yeah. or a wood stove? Yeah, you you really do get a glimpse of, you know, and, and you know, the weather was even that stormy when we were out. I mean, compared to what they had gone through. I mean, they were in a, you know, a typhoon or a hurricane. Uh, coming around Cape Horn and then into the Gulf of Pain where the wager wrecked. And like um, in a fucking dinghy, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they're in these wooden carousel ships. So, uh, and then eventually they're just a basically, yeah, little rowboats trying to get off <laughs> get off the island. Uh, so yeah, they're in these wooden ships that are just being battered and eaten. So yes, you get, you get a sense of, and you know, for me, it was just, you know, you know, those ships, I mean, what's amazing about that, when they're coming around Cape Horn, you know, they were in a storm where the waves could dwarf a 90-foot mast. They were in hurricane-force winds. They were in the strongest currents. I mean, it really just the most violent seas possible. I was probably in just a fraction of those, and I was about as seasick as could be. I was like one of those, you know, uh, I was like a walking laboratory for seasickness medicine because I had everything going. I had the, you know, the patch behind the ear and I don't normally get seasick, but I had the patch behind the ear that some doctor prescribed. Then I was like, you know, I had something around my wrist. I don't even the know what that does. The C-band. I don't even know what that does. I think that's really over. I think that's something you buy at 4 a.m. off cable news. I don't know if it's, that really works. It's got real uh, relief pitcher energy. The I was going to say like, this kind of reminds me of like Turk Wendell pitching for the Mets and he's got like, it's like a shark's tooth, but it's like a prescription shark's tooth. <laughs> Necklaces, but and it's and it's made of copper. Yeah. It's got copper and it's got magnets. It promotes yep. blood flow. It's so good. For it's got ions. Yeah. In it. So whatever that thing was doing, I don't think it was doing. And then I was just like popping Dramamine, so I was like basically like in a stupor. I was like half like just kind of laying there as the boat would rock and shake. And then you know me being the bright person, I had to pass the time because you just had to sit. You couldn't stand. You couldn't eat. You just spent about ten hours sitting on the deck because if you stood, you would get chucked against the the wall of the ship and so i would just sit there and to pass the t- time i i was like oh okay i've got a recording of moby dick by herman melville on my phone i'll listen to that and how appropriate uh, yeah really appropriate i'm um, not perhaps the most soothing thing to have done um <laughs> and and good to get through these seats so yes it did give me a glimpse um the, the good thing is that our captain was far less tempestuous than the captain of the wager and was very steady and composed and led us through into the gulf of pain and then through the gulf of pain to wager island hey, that's that's incredible so once you had that experience, once you did all your research, you still managed to write a book that's very tight, clocks in under 300 pages. How were you able to winnow down your research and shape it into that concise of a narrative? Like, how do you know which parts to leave out? The boring parts, really. Is it instinct, or do you have to go through a lot of self-editing and a lot of work with your editor to get it down to that sort of digestible 
Yes. Perfect. Yeah, is there pacer. like a 600 page draft of this? Like the, the three VHS tape version yeah, of I'm, Dune I'm, I'm, or something? I'll do the director's cut like yeah. eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it could be, it could be fucking 800 pages. If you... yeah. um, so, you know, the, the, it is always the challenge of what is that balance when, because I'm really trying to write a narrative and stay within a story and the framework of the story and the subjects of the story and not get too far away from them. And yet also kind of, fill in the book with its context and themes. And so I think the hardest part is I have to kind of do this, which is, for example, just to be specific in the beginning of the book, which is a bit of setup, I I have to describe how these floating civilizations are built, what life is like on these ships, because you're not going to understand what happens when these civilizations disintegrate on the island unless you knew what they were like before. Yeah, so I thought I, that actually was really interesting. I liked yeah. all of that, that yeah. detail. Yeah, like so the, you have to juxtapose. I felt like you couldn't do one without the other. And so, you know, I geeked out with obsessive research on everything about building these ships and how these ships function and life on board these ships. And those are the parts that you, you know, even up to the very end, uh, you know, when I even had the book galley, uh, I was still trying to, you know, make a few trims just to make sure I had the balance. So you have all the context, all the meaning, and you winnow it down to the best detail. So, for example, you do all this research and inevitably you write it too long. My first editor is my wife. Um, and so I will, after I finish a chapter, I will give give it to my wife and I have what I call the... The, the God No File. And the God No File is when I give a chapter to my wife and she reads it. And then I suddenly hear a gasp and say, Oh, God, no. And, that, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where, you know, I, I went off on a digression, you know, far too long on a building of a ship or life on board a ship or describing how they loaded the provision on the ship. So, so she ain't, she ain't saying, Oh, no, because. Because like Captain David Cheap is in danger. She's like, no, no, oh, no. She's just, it's, no, no. It's like, oh, like, my husband, my husband yeah. went way too because far. Because you're, yeah. you're just like the word scurvy derives from the Greek language. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh god, no. Like you know. So she's a great reader, and um, and uh, so is, and I joke that I have the God No file, and that's like basically where all the cuts and the digressions go. But what's good about that is I've kind of just come to accept that as part of the process. I used to get so upset because you're like wedded to it and the research, and now I'm like, that's eh, just part of the process. I've got to do all this learning. I have to write it a certain way to master it and to have control over the information. And then I get to distill it to the best. And then you just get these wonderful facts. And so you just distill it down to those facts that astonished you when you found them. So like when you're describing building a ship, you're like, whoa, it took 4,000 trees to build one of these. You're just like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. And like you realize it's all wood and they're getting eaten through by by these worms that bore holes in them. And the rats are gnawing at the provisions, the ropes. And it's like you just you focus in on all these and like and then even on the provisions you're just like oh my god okay it took a single warship would have like hopefully i get these uh measurements right now it's been a while but i think it's like 40 miles of rope on one ship and fifteen thousand square feet of sail and then they had like a farm's worth of animals and they're trying to get like imagine you're trying to get cattle and pigs onto a floating vessel uh which they were never required so you can just then you you just hone it down and you just try to get get the balance and it's always a trick and hopefully you get it right but it's it's definitely a process i've read a lot of shipwreck books and i, I every time i fall every time for any provisions list where like if, if they're just listing out coffee chocolate 
heart attack. I'm like, oh, that sounds so. Oh yeah, you gotta have gotta have that that uh, that fat back. That's really boy, boy, would I love some heart attack. That sounds real fucking good. Yeah, this is like I think. In my head, I mean, you've written some real classics in this genre, but there's a type of story that I think of as basically like a really difficult thing where shitty stuff keeps happening to a guy. And you are like, I mean, again, I agree with Drew's assessment of you as a, you know, a titan of the form. But some of the stories of yours that I've enjoyed the most are basically like that is sort of the rising action where you're sort of like all right well here's the great plan that they have and then <laughs> the part where the roller coaster starts going down is then like and now it was on him to cross-country ski across antarctica and you're like don't don't it's so stupid don't do this yeah it's people get these either nations or people get these ideas in their head and kind of worms hold of them and they sit off and often things do not go as planned. And I mean, this is one of those books too. It's like, okay, chapter one set up, chapter two, you kind of get life on the ship. And then basically from chapter three on, it's just basically everything goes wrong. Everybody just getting their dicks kicked in for like 10 years. Yeah, well, it's tough. Yeah. And then every step too, like even as a researcher and a writer, you're like, oh my God. And like, oh no, it gets worse. <laughs> it's like also one of those stories. It's not even like it's like equal balance of bad shit happening. It's like, oh no, it's worse shit happening. <laughs> Are you able to tell fairly quickly not just with the wager, but with your other works, if something you're looking into can be a story, like have you had to dig deep on certain stories only to realize that they were dead ends? And if you have, please tell us about those dead ends because I want to hear about yeah, so the stories I, that were almost publishable but weren't. Yeah, so um, I definitely go through an early process of pretty rigorous investigation before I commit either to a magazine story or it's a longer process if it's a book. Um, you know, the, the last thing I want to do with a magazine story, let's say, is, you know, get halfway in and be like, what am I doing with this? Because I really only believe a writer, you know, there are some writers who are just so magnificent, they probably can just make any material sing. But it's pretty hard if you're if you're working with uh, material that just doesn't work because, you know, you're you're dealing with nonfiction and facts. You can only well, also, it's not the 70s anymore. You can't just like Yeah, you can't just make, you're not just going to yeah, make right. stuff. Right, right. You're like, oh, okay, I'm suddenly in their head and in cold blood before they're killed. That always bothered me. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, you're not going to do that. So um, so, and with a book, that's especially true because these books take me so long because part of the challenge is you want to do all that research so that you can make it really vivid, but hopefully wear the research lightly. Um, but you need those underlying materials. And so the worst thing you can do is like two years in, be like, I just committed a two-year error. I'm just being, so Ooh. I I do all this. And so just like, for example, with the wager that, that when I first came across that story, I, I came upon a... Um, 18th century journal written by John Byron, who was a 16-year-old midshipman on the wager when it set sail. And he would later, the name is maybe familiar, Byron. He yeah, he's be- of the Byron Byron. Yes, yeah. The great that little reveals Lord, in the book. That Byron, yeah. That Byron, yeah. So he's the, he's the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose poetry, if you ever read Don Juan, is very influenced by his, what he referred to as my granddad's narrative. So, and I started reading his account. Now, it's like anything, you come across of 18th century account, it's written in this archaic tangled uh, English, you know, the uh, the S's are printed as F's. And at first you're like, what is this? But then I just kept coming across these descriptions about scurvy and the perfect hurricane and shipwreck and cannibal. And you, you know, I realized that, okay, this was the first thing that hooked me. It got, you know, I felt like, okay, these, this 
contains hints of one of the more extraordinary sagas of survival and resilience and mayhem that I that I come across. So that was my hook, but that would not yet have been enough for the book. Then I did a process. I have to answer the question, okay, well, this is a story from the 1700s. How am I going to find the underlying material? So then I have to go through that process. Do these diaries and journals and logbooks and muster books still exist in archives today? Which at first I was like, no way. And it turned out they did. There are these crumbling, disintegrating books that survived the shipwreck and this expedition and the voyage that you can access and read. Um, and then when they st- give you access, do you have to like put on latex gloves and use like a pair of tweezers like well, to turn each page? You know, shit? yeah, they they will give you access. Actually, interesting. Early when I did my research, they did have you put on gloves, and then later there's kind of been some studies showing that gloves are less effective. So now they don't want you to wear gloves. But in the past, whenever I did research, you would wear gloves, but now you, they don't want you to wear gloves. Do you have to wear a mask around the book? You don't have so to. You wear don't get ma- COVID. You don't have to give a COVID, but you are breathing okay. in the dust that is disintegrating from them because they are oh my God. the, the leather bound. You know, it's and it's does that help? the process to breathe in the <laughs> like year old dust silverfish <laughs> laying eggs in your yeah, sinus cavity it gives you scurvy and then you're ready to go um yeah, so, once your teeth are loose you know you're yeah, almost there yeah, then you're committed uh so so those things exist and, and and in this book what was really weird was so you're still though figuring out well, what is the story about so i was like okay this was an gripping adventure story but it's from the 18th century why tell this story why commit all this time to the research and when I was looking at that archival material, um, the thing that really began to interest me was not only what happened on the island, but what happened after some of the castaways made it back to England. And there's someone to face this court-martial for the alleged crimes that they had committed while on the island. And they begin to release these accounts, which I'm reading. Um, and they are, you know, fearing they're going to be hanged, you know, for these crimes. So after everything they've been through, waging a war against these elements, they begin to wage this war over the truth. That's what I'm reading about. Like there's like disinformation and competing narratives and even allegations of these fake journals. And then I would come home and I'd, you know, read the newspaper, flip on the TV. And what would I hear? You know, alternative facts, so-called fake news and our own contemporary battles over the nature of truth, the, the sabotaging of truth, the, the crumbling of, of empiricism. And I thought, God, this really has echoes. And then I would go back to archives and I would be reading how there was even a war over history back then and who would get to tell this history. And there were efforts by those in power to to cover up the history and manufacture their own version. And then, of course, back at home, there was there are these great battles over what books can be taught and a reckoning with our past. And so that was when, to answer your question, I really felt when I was like, OK, I'm committed to this because it has it now has all the it's answered these questions I need to answer, which is okay, it's gripping. It'll be a hopefully a you know a, an interesting study of human nature. Um, but then it also has these larger themes, and there are these materials that will hopefully let me um, narrate it in a vivid way. Yeah, I I think that's interesting. You talked about history because I had just uh, I'm gonna get all highfalutin here. I just did a panel with a historian. Uh, who said that history majors have gone down drastically uh, at colleges all across the nation. Yeah. And that also, uh, we also know that a lot of high schools and, and middle schools are sort of, are they're not getting rid of history, but they're so focused on math and reading that history is falling a bit by the wayside. And what's taking its place is what um, this writer, his name was uh, Jason Steinauer, called e-history, which is like, instead of reading a history book, 
or, or, or compelling narrative like yours, I'm getting my history through like a five minute TikTok about like the Teapot Dome scandal and shit like that. Yeah. And a lot of that is like, there's a, there's a big transition of recorded history going from books and libraries and, and museums where, where history almost lived exclusively migrating online where kind of anybody has a say in it, which is good in some ways because a lot of people were underrepresented in recorded history until now. But there's a lot of shit too. And so it's very hard, I think, now to parse out, particularly if, you know, if you're, you know, if you're like 13 or something like that, or if you're an adult and you're and you're stupid, frankly, like to figure out what history to believe, what history is going to be quality. Like where where is my where am I sourcing my history from? Who's telling it to me? Yes, yes. And uh you know, it's why, like, even in my books, I include so many notes and, and bibliographies. And people complain. They're like, I finished your book on the Kindle. And, like, I didn't realize it was 40% more to go of notes. But I do that so that people can look at the sourcing and dig up things and find things and look for things. Because I think that is really – and also just to credit so many other scholars that don't work. But, you know, I had these discussions with my kids because, you know, they're – you know, I have a daughter who's in high school and, you know, they'll see something and, you know, we will then try to investigate whether, the, you know, should we see something online or what's the veracity? How do we discern sources? And, you know, one of the things in trying to tell this book where I'm trying to explore the way each of the, each of the main subjects I'm um, writing about are telling their story because they're, they're all shaping their story is hopefully to make us more discerning readers of how we shape stories, how we tell stories, how we manipulate stories. And hopefully it's almost like I, I'm trying at least to put the burden on the reader to be a judge and to actually provide the judgment of history by providing the records, providing how each one of them is shaping the story and hoping that they can sort through it and through this kind of contrasting of these three main stories or three main figures and the way they shape the story, uh, you know, arrive at, at you know, as good or as close to the truth as we can get. If the reader in question you're putting your onus on is Kyrie Irving, I'm afraid you're going to be extremely disappointed. And I just want you to know that. We have to take a break. We're going to come back right back with David Grant. But uh, before we take a break, I just want to tell you this podcast is sponsored by Wine and Velvet, another erotically charged thriller from best-selling author D.E. Flagstone. Yes, Detective Julie Randy is back on the case. And this time, she might have met her match in a sexy football player who might just be a murderer. You'll be up all night reading to see if Julie gets her man in more ways than one. We'll be right back with David Grant. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to hear that, David Grant. <laughs> By the way, that's not a real book. It's David totally Grant. fake. That is a that is a fake book. <laughs> it does not exist. Hey, it's Drew. This week, we're sponsored by Athletic Greens, which provides comprehensive nutrition and gut health support in one convenient scoop. Their all-in-one formula makes it easy for you to cover your nutritional bases every day. Every scoop of Athletic Greens is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients of the highest quality that give me major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and even healthier skin, hair, and nails. And if you're on the road, Athletic Greens makes a convenient single-serving travel pack so you never have to miss a day. You just mix the powder into cold water and drink it first thing each morning. And I, I myself, tried Athletic Greens. I had to do it for a magazine assignment, but I 
liked it so much that I was just happy to do it and drink it every day. And I, I would take it out with me on my bike and put it in my sports bottle. And that was how I got not only hydration, but a little extra energy boost uh, while I was biking hard out on the trails. So if you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash distraction. That's athleticgreens.com slash distraction. Check it out. And we're back with David Grant, author of The Wager, uh, among other books. And I want to talk about that uh, in this part of the podcast. Uh, David, The Wager is your second book. Your second book that's being adapted into a movie by director Martin Scorsese with Leonardo DiCaprio attached to Star. Unfor- that's so unfortunate for you. I'm, I'm sorry about your bad luck on that. Um, are you on a first name basis with both men? Like, do you tell your friends you're off to dinner with Marty? Do <laughs> you Lorne Michaels it? You're like, yeah, Marty and Leo, we're going to my beach place. I think it would be so pretentious if I did. I don't, I don't travel. I'm actually so like oddly private, but it, they have been wonderful. They've been wonderful. I will say they have been wonderful to work with, mostly just because like they're they are kind of artists so there's just a normalcy to them you know whenever you do talk to them it's always about the project itself and about it's almost like talking to an editor i mean they're just trying to figure out how can we tell the story and and get it right and and so in a weird way the you know um the conversations have a i have kind of an odd kind of normalcy to me because they're not so different than the conversation you would have with an editor or somebody reading your book when you got the news that uh the first adaptation of uh, the first adaptation that they're doing is Killers of the Flower Moon, which will be out soon. Um, when you got the news that they were going to participate and make that uh, make that movie, first of all, how did you get that news? And how did you feel once you get the news? This is a layup of a question, but I, I, I want to know. Like, <laughs> yeah, were you honestly, happy? Like, <laughs> I, like I've, I would fucking I, I have spent I have fantasized about that sort of thing happening to me. And it happened to you. What was that like? You know, I, this is, uh, you know, the process with these developments are always so kind of long and circuitous. So something is getting developed and you're like, who's attached and who's developing? Developing. So that kind of happens a little bit over time. But um, when I learned that they were doing, yeah, you're just kind of like, you're mostly just like, I really can't believe it. Because um, the, the weirdest thing is, you know, you have all these aspirations as a writer, you know, you think, okay, uh, can I, I, you know, can I get a magazine story published? You know, how do I get out of daily newspaper? You know, I had all these kind of aspirations. How can I get to the New Yorker? Well, they'll let me write about weird things. And, you know, editors won't look at me and be like, no, you're, you're, we're never going to let you write about that because <laughs> it's so off the beaten path. Um, and then, and then you're like, okay, well maybe I'll write a book. So the one thing that is actually never on your list, like, oh, one day they will, uh, Barnes Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio will be developing a project. I, so, you know, you just, it's almost so surreal. You don't even think about it that much. So I will say the one point, the one time where there was an element of your, an element of just like, I can't believe this is happening. Cause most of the time I'm just so focused on my research and I'm like in the archives, I don't think about it that much, but there was a moment, I think it was during, I can't remember what it was. I was watching a football game during the playoffs and an ad or 
something came on for Apple and they had a little bit in there from Killers of the Flower Moon. And that's when I was like, oh my God, that's so crazy. I never thought Doing, that would happen. Doing, paying homage to your collaborator, Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, by recreating the meme where he points at himself from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. I do want to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. It's about uh, members of the Osage Indian tribe who were targeted and killed by their white neighbors and sometimes their white spouses because their reservation uh, had rights to vast reserves of oil that were worth billions and billions of dollars. Have you seen the rough cut of that film yet? So I saw an early cut of it. I will say this. It's a little bit tricky. I don't really know what the bounds are. I didn't do any union work on the on the movie because I just saw the rights. But I want to be a little bit careful just to honor the, the writer strike right now. Yeah. So um, I don't know. You know, it's a little bit of a gray area because I didn't, you know, I didn't write the script or anything. But um, right. So in talking about the film, so maybe better, like I could talk about the project, I could talk a lot about the the the, the underlying story, uh, but I want to be a little bit careful just to be respectful on that front. Okay. Well, in that case, I do want to ask you the hard question, okay, which go ahead. is, were you comfortable with a white man directing the story, given that it's about an insidious bit of microgenocide that was perpetrated by white men on the Osage tribe? Are you comfortable with two white men, DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, headlining that film? Yeah. So um, for me, the most important thing for the project um, and the part that always makes you nervous when somebody is developing a book is how will they interpret and render a, in a case like this very sensitive, you know, you know, one of the worst racial injustices and really one of the more monstrous crimes in American history. And um, very early on, um, I was greatly relieved to see how closely they were working with members of the Osage Nation. And so just like me, when I was telling my book, you know, my book is drawn on those the interviews with countless Osage and Osage elders, and I had developed those relationships over time. It was really important for movie folks and the entire production team, not just the director, but everyone on every level. Um, and um, early on, the chief... Uh, of those days nation jeff jeffrey standing bear um had appointed some ambassadors to make sure to the movie to make sure that that communication took place and to the best of my knowledge it really did and so even though uh you know it is being directed uh you know by a white director um um members of those age were deeply involved in the telling and uh, the rendering of the story from almost every level. I mean, they not only in terms of shaping the story, but um, there are Osage actors with speaking roles in the movie. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, they weren't actors beforehand. And um, the Osage language is used in the movie. Um, and all the shooting was done on location, which was something that was really important to those Osage nations. So they shot on location, they shot on the reservation. Um, so, um, you're always uncomfortable or not uncomfortable. You're always nervous with any development of any project. Um, but the fact that that care was being taken, um, was very comforting to me and, um, and, and that they seemed to share the same fierce commitment to the story that I had and getting it right and highlighting what is really this monstrous series of crimes. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think it does. Yeah. So I, you yeah. know, because you know, 
I, I was going to ask you, like, well, is, is it a lot of quick cuts and a coked up Leo? It was like, I had to deal with the fucking Osage Nation. Let me tell you, they were busting my fucking balls, these people. I will say that as somebody who, who revered that book, that this was one of those things where I knew that it was going to be made into some kind of property. And it just kept, from you know my perspective, as far outside of it as possible. Like There's so many ways that that could have gone, and it just kept not being the bad option. Like There was a part of me that was like, don't make this a limited series. Like, please, I don't want to see this shit on like Amazon Prime, you know, like, and it was just people that seemed to take it very seriously at every step, taking it seriously. And that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I was yes. glad to see that. I, I was too, because, you know, the thing about a book is like, okay, you write a story like Killers of the Flower Moon and like, you know, your hope is like, you know, that story, like people, you asked a little bit earlier about like why you write stories. You know, I'm always so ignorant about the stories I write about. I'm not like a, I'm not a specialist. So it's like, I'm not, I usually when I stumble upon something, I know, you know, just so little about it. And um, so, you know, when I wrote about these really sinister killings and conspiracies to, to wipe out members of the Osage Nation in the early 20th century for their oil money, you know, this was something that the members of the Osage Nation obviously had remembered deeply and had preserved their history and passed it down. But so many people outside the Osage Nation and even in parts of Oklahoma uh, and myself had never been taught that history. We'd never learned it. We had basically excised it from our conscience. And so, you know, my hope with the book was just my ignorance and hopefully some of the ignorance of others. And and then, you know, but I'm not naive. I know that a film can reach even more people. And so, you know, my hope is it's, you know, that all these things just kind of begin discussions. I'm also not a believer um, in definitive stories. I always think I hate when people, even people of my colleagues, you know, I wrote the definitive book or I wrote the definitive article. Ah, really? Is anything definitive? You know, they're all partial. We're all, you know, based on what we know in the moment and what we've learned and we all do the best we can and it's our perspective and and, um, and it's through the kind of accumulation of information over time and through discussions that our learning really grows. And so, you know, I'm always, you know, my hope is, you know, people watch the film or they'll read the book and then maybe they'll go read a book by Charles Redcorn for the pipe for February. He was kind of my first guide into the Osage community. And he wrote, he's, he's no longer alive, but he was an Osage elder. Um, and he wrote a, a, a book set in that time period called the pipe for February, which is terrific. Um, Elise Passion, who's an Osage poet. So, you know, it, hopefully people go to her work and so that's always my hope is like that's you know to me that's learning yeah this is i know it's not a podcast about me but as a a history major who has very much enjoyed these works like not just as a reader now but this was what made me i mean i've always been a, a language person i didn't want to be an english major because at college so much of that was about textual analysis and theory and what i was a story guy that was always it and i found that with history that that not only you know, it's not a, a pure narrative, like it has to be grounded in stuff, but that sort of dynamic tension of stories and counter stories and, you know, adding on to over the course of time, the way that this stuff sort of accumulates towards, if not a truth, a sort of a shared understanding of, of what happens. I think that these, I mean, and The Wager does this too, I think with with Empire and yeah. with 
also with you I mean not workplace stuff as we understand it like no one's cutting a gym face at the camera but these guys are press ganged into working on a ship and it sucks and <laughs> yeah. they die out there yeah, you know? no, yeah 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 that i found really interesting i didn't know about press gangs which for people who haven't read the book for expeditions like this uh they would round guys up and essentially kidnap them away from their families to force them to be shipmen on these boats and i did not know any of that. And when you tell me that information, you tell it to me in the book very soberly, David, and you don't need any more uh, elaboration. Like, I know it's monstrous. I know it's fucking nuts. And just to have those facts out there, I think is what's so, what works so well. It's really, it's the same deal with Killers of the Flower Moon. There was never like any point in Killers of the Flower Moon where you paused for like a paragraph and you're like, now this is really bad. Like it is inherently bad and you trust the reader to understand that and that i like a lot yeah i think i do really believe in in not trying to hector the reader but to show and to show in such a way where hopefully those deductions and the power of what they're reading or seeing visualizing through the words will come across and you know well two things one is i, I want to come back to the one 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 thematic point but just on the pressing like when we we're talking about the facts like you know as a researcher, I never lose my astonishment when I come across these details. And so I expect ensuring them, hopefully the reader will will share in that astonishment. So, you know, when they, they send these press gangs out to round up these people, uh, you know, anyone with the telltale signs of a mariner, they would just basically seize and in effect kidnap them and drag them recalcitrantly onto the ships. Um, but at that point, the Admiralty was still short of men. And then you're reading about how they sent in, they basically rounded up people from essentially like a retirement home for like soldiers and seamen. And um, these people were in their sixties and seventies and many were missing an assortment of limbs and some were so sick. They had to be lifted onto the ship uh, in stretchers. You know, know just from reading it, they're all going to be sailing to their death. And so just showing that again, you're just, you know, I'm never, you know, to me, the, 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 pleasures or the the privilege of research is coming across these singing you know I, I still never lose my astonishment about the things humans do um but just one other note on the connection when we we're talking about history and killers of the flower and the wager you had asked me a little bit about you know what commits me to a story and the story of the wager and the killers of the flower moon are very different in terms of so i mean they could be more different in terms of time and setting and, and subject matter and yet there was an overlapping theme for me. Um, one of the things that I was really interested in, Killers of the Flower Moon, was and kind of haunted me after the book was was done, which was kind of why certain parts of our history become part of our collective memory and other parts of our history are left out and we don't tell. So how could this really central story and piece of our history that wasn't even that old? I mean, we're talking about when I was writing it was less than a century you know, had not been kind of taught or wasn't in our, you know, generally in our history books. Um, and so when I was researching the wager and I started to see how um, there were efforts to kind of cover up the history and to whitewash it and to scrub it clean about empire and to kind of manufacture kind of a more mythic tale. And that would be the tale that would be told and passed down for generations. I thought the story really offered a perfect illustration of that. So that was also one of the reasons that drew me to want to tell the wager, even though the subject matter was very different. Uh, David, you're a Knicks fan. 
Why? <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> that is, that's the sort of segue. That's why they paid Drew the big bucks. That is. Not a lot of people could do that. It's why Multitude hired us. It's, it's right. <laughs> well, the greatest philosophical debate is why does one remain loyal to a team based on an accident of geography? <laughs> I could have been born right. in, I could have been born in San Francisco. I could have been in Houston. I could have been in Chicago. Um, but, uh, and had, uh, you know, different basketball teams that could have been in Miami, but I was accidentally born in New York and grew up outside, uh, New York. And so the Knicks were always my team and I have remained steadfast despite the worst owner or one of the worst owners in all sports. <laughs> you could do a book on the Marbury Knicks because, you know, who's to say that hasn't been kind of lost to history <laughs> Yes, yeah. and the, maybe even scrubbed from history by uh, current Knicks fans. Nobody yeah, talks know. about Marty Collins anymore. They're well, trying look, to cover don't. it up. You, you know what? It's so true. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would just say this as a Knicks fan, like we don't whitewash our history. We're just haunted by it constantly <laughs> and plagued by it. Every We remember every sin and every yeah, foible. Yeah, you don't shut up about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're very loud and obnoxious. I mean, right now I'm sure it's hard to be a Sixers fan too. So. <laughs> yeah, but tough shit Sixers. <laughs> oh gosh, they just canned Doc Rivers. It's nice, always nice to break news on the podcast. Did that they, oh, really did they? Happened. Did they just yeah. can him? Yeah, Eric just dropped a note in there. Oh my That's goodness. incredible. It's I, just like if... If you didn't win an NBA title this year, you're fired. Like, that's the deal. I think like, there's a case for firing Doc. I So, well, this is a, an open-ended question in a podcast full of open-ended questions. But uh, how are you feeling about the, the Knicks? I mean, like, this was actually, by was, the standards of the Knicks, a decently fun season. Obviously, it didn't end the way you wanted and stuff like that. But I feel like... Jalen Brunson's got a chance at being the king of New York for a few years, which is always cool. It's been a long time since they had anybody that even could have made a claim to that. I think his kind of becoming something that I think even in our most hopeful uh, thoughts, we didn't know he could reach that level, um, I think is what gives me some hope because we really need you know, a star of his caliber. And we still need another. I will say watching Randall play basketball is, is not, is one of the more frustrating experiences as a Knicks fan. Uh, but uh, Brunson gives me hope. And the fact that they have not completely mortgaged their uh, draft picks and that they're actually financially pretty sound to get some. So if they, yes, if they can get one other player, but somebody really good, it can't be Randall. Yeah. That's the point that Giddy, our, our resident Knicks fan on staff has made about Randall. I mean, obviously every Knicks fan, it is your right like they can't take it away that you get to complain about Julius Randle forever. You could like wake the bing bong guy up in the middle of the night and he would be able to give you 20 minutes to get angry about it. He's just frustrating. He's not a bad player. Like that's the thing. He's just a very frustrating player. Yeah. And Giddy's argument is that basically he gets more useful the lower down on the chart of options that he gets. I mean, he's really like he has improved. He's added all these different elements to his game. But like if he's your number one creator, like he was – the year before last, uh, like the non-playoff year, then it's miserable. It's a miserable experience for everybody, and the team's going to lose. If he is a third option or a counterpuncher or something like that, yes. then maybe you're great. Yes, yes. If he would just be a scorer. I mean, the one thing with him is he just – he always kind of thinks he's a little bit the first option. He doesn't pass sometimes when he's yes. in a triple team, and that just drives me nuts. But, yes, he's more frustrating because he does have talent. It's funny. Like when it's like the – when the person's like the 10th player off the bench, you don't really rant and rave. Like, you know, you're like yep. it doesn't really matter if they're that good or bad. Um, and I don't yet really know if we have the coach who can get us across the finish line without the a little more innovative offense but i am in a better place as a Knicks fan than i've been in a long time is your answer <laughs> that's good, good yeah hear. because watching julius randall like it was a little I, I was a little bit triggered you know i'm watching a Knicks big man thinking that his shooting range is 
way, way, way better than it actually is. And that's like, that reminds me of another fella. And, you know, I, I, I did not enjoy watching Patrick Ewing play basketball. So I have to. He was. I thought you were going to say like when Zach Randolph used to shoot threes or something. Like no, no, no. Like like I mean that is just a standard Knicks like trope through history. But I think of Ewing as essentially the progenitor of that sort of big man who's just doing way too fucking much. Uh, Tall man whom jump shots. Uh, it's time for a guy of the week, David Grant. Every week we remember an athlete of yours, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey. I remember that guy. And to be a little bit mean, David Grant, your guy of the week is Charles Smith. You remember that guy? Oh, God. I mean, you were even giving me PTSD. I mean, this sorry. I mean, that sorry. is just so minutes of his time. I mean, that <laughs> is just so mean. I mean, what are you like? Hey, man, you, you survived like two weeks in the Gulf of yeah, Pain. Yeah, this is Surely. so much worse. I mean, honestly, I haven't <laughs> thought of that. I, I'm trying to block out that name. And it's like, you said of these hearts, oh, and you've like triggered me. Like, I just now, it's like I have flashbacks. Like, just hit the layup, just slam it, just go oh. up. I mean, it's, oh, it's just, that was the worst. Oh, oh now I now I feel bad. Yeah, we, that was like you could have picked anyone. Remember Bill Bradley? How about that? Remember Bill Bradley? That's a that's a better. <laughs> so yeah, so the Charles Smith lack of a shot. Yeah, that will always go down in history. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Nick, like, is there like a happy memory? Like, do you remember Anthony Mason dribbling up the court, looking extremely rectangular and mean? Does that like put a smile on your face? Or what? you know, what, well, that's funny. Some of my fondest memories of like of Knicks fans because it was like my age was like basically like when when the Knicks played football as a basketball yeah. team. So it would be yep. it would be more like Anthony Mason, like somebody coming across the middle and like being like taken out for a week by Anthony Mason. It was Steve fun. Atwater mode yeah. was activated. Yeah, yeah. 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 So those would be my memory. Like, I mean, Charles. Oakley always generates positive uh, moments. Um, I would say Brunson. I mean, Brunson in this series is about as good as it gets. I mean, it was basically Brunson against the Miami Heat in that last game. Uh, so, um, you know, there's some good ones. I mean, I actually always love John Starks, but then you're always just played by that one game, which I thought you were going to mention when, like, outside your range. I thought you were going to bring that up, Drew. No, for the record, for the record, I did not bring that up. <laughs> I, I only brought up all the other horrible yeah. shots. So, you so I'm always like, but that. I did love him. You know, I did. I actually did like him because I actually, I always like, you know, look, as a basketball fan, you have to identify with the people who, when you look at them, you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, you're not seven feet like a gazelle who could slam. Right, yeah, like, like, obviously you, a god. I could be you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, like, I, you know, you know, you can look at them and be like, oh, okay, I can imagine myself maybe with just a few twists of fate and, you know, maybe, yep. you know, so, yes. Can I tell a brief, a, a quick John Starks thing? This isn't even really about him, but I... I I hope he's doing well. I read and enjoyed Chris Herring's book, Blood in the Garden, about the 90s Knicks. Starks is a really vivid portrait of him, emerges in that book. I have no idea how he's doing. You know, he shows up. He was at the Garden for uh, game six or game seven or whatever. And he, game seven. So, But I don't know what's going on. I was walking in Chelsea with a friend who was in from out of town. And I saw a car with a John Starks Kia license plate frame on it. And I was like, good for you, man. That's excellent. Like, I hope everything is going get, well. Get your little endorser. Good. Yes, yes. Yes. I did see him at the game. David, did you have a poster in your room of uh, Starks dunking over Jordan? Because that was Knicks one of fans the, dined that, out on that, that for was what you, yes, about that's, 20 years. Well, right. You have your Charles Smith, and then you have to erase that image, and then you have that unbelievable dunk of, of John yeah. Starks. Just that would be a really nice note to add to the so, – to take our listeners inside the game, we can see David Grant's uh, sort of study behind him here. And it looks 
the way you would want it to look, big piles of books and documents and stuff. If you slapped a John Starks poster on the wall behind you, it's the it one thing that's work. missing. It would be yeah. so it would be so sweet. I could really use it. <laughs> like just get a fat head of the moment. Just, <laughs> it takes a whole wall. So it's time to open up the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. This one's an audio one. And it'll be the only one that we'll, uh, we'll subject David Grant to. So uh, let's hear it. Hey, Distraction Crew. Alex here. Um, just want to say I was out with some friends this weekend and accidentally said rhetoric instead of rhetoric. And uh, they lit me up for it. And so now I'll never laugh at the uh, Ross Panera joke uh, ever again. But I uh, just wanted to ask, is there anything worse with the same low level of stakes as mispronouncing a word in front of your friends. Thanks. Keep up the good work. David Grant, have you ever had that problem where you 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 had a glaring mispronunciation that everybody saw and heard? Oh, I do it actually uh, uh, embarrassing a lot. I, I sometimes just have blocks on words. I also have a terrible, all right, I'll tell you my secret. I had like a weird New London accent. My father was born in London, Connecticut. And so it's not quite a Boston accent, but you say your R's are very weird. And so to this day, I am still constantly mocked, including by my own children, when I say the word idea, because I put it like an R on it. Idea. Yeah. Uh, you know? Oh, okay. And yeah, that's that's just, a, my, my wife is of a Maine family. So yeah. like at this point, it's like basically I've heard the word pronounced with an R at the end of it about as often as I've heard it pronounced without. Do you do the Connecticut T thing too, where it's like Matin and Button? No, I'm okay with that. But like, if okay. you do, if you do like, I, and I'm not even going to do it because I'm too embarrassed. Like I've now learned ways. I'm just like, oh, I have a really good notion. People are like, why are you using the word notion? I was like, well, I don't want to say that other word because I'll mispronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, I wow. should try that. I should be like, we should go to a fast casual bakery famous for its soups and sandwiches. That's Any remarkable. kind is fine. I, so, yeah, I have obviously uh, a lot of North Jersey pronunciation damage in, uh, in my, and some of it is just, you know, I have read more words than I've heard said out loud. I think that's, so you're kind of taking your best guess at a lot of stuff. Oh my God, there are always those so, words you wonder about for like life. Like, and now I'm going to see, I'm going to blank out what they are, but there are always these words like, how do you pronounce that? Like, it's a, it's a, well, also like I, sometimes I don't know which words I pronounce. Like, I don't know, actually. Like, if you tell me, do you pronounce it apricot or apricot? I don't know. I don't remember. And like, vase and vase, I don't know. I might interchange them. I have no fucking idea yeah, how I pronounce wise, those words. I get busted on this. Like, there's been times where you've been, like, Drew has been like, like, Dave, say orange. Because, like, I say it in a weird North Jersey way. But if I'm thinking about it, I will say the normal version, which I guess it. is yeah, but it's like, but there is like a part of me, if I'm not, I did this, I was talking to, I'll take everybody, this is this is what my life is like uh, as a childless person in their 40s. My wife and I were at the dog run looking at dogs, as we do sometimes, and I said the To be phrase, clear, you don't own a dog. You just don't own a dog. to the dog park to look at dogs. Yep, uh, which is not weird. It's your it's very, petting zoo. It's a very normal thing for us to do. Well, we try not to pet them, that, that seems like you're crossing a line. Yeah, no, 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 I don't. So- the words L-O-N-G, new word, D-O-G. There is a way that you can say that, if you're me, that makes you sound like Tony Soprano's mom, <laughs> which is basically what I did. Like, I was like, that's a long dog. And she's like, get, get out of here, man. Like, you got to be careful when you say stuff like that. That's just a plain old accent, though. You it is. Say, like, I think it's not a mispronunciation, doggy. one way or the other. Rhetoric uh. is weird, because you don't say rhetorical. You say rhetorical. Say that rhetoric. is a bit weird, isn't it? 
Yeah. So yeah. I know our, our uh, listeners' friends are wrong. Yeah, we should we should do something about that. But in the meantime, let's end the podcast. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-PANERA. Zero mm. and David Grant. You can find David Grant on Twitter at David Grant. It's actually it's a fantastic Twitter feed because it's just like the man himself. Straight facts, no bullshit. And also his books, The Wager, that's out right now. Kills of the Flower Moon is out. The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which I love, that's out. And The Lost City of Z. Those are you've got four books. Is that did did I get yeah, all of them? Yeah, that's it. They're all wonderful. Oh, the White books. Darkness. I, I can't even remember what I do anymore. and the white darkness which uh roth loved and which i have also read they're all fantastic cannot uh cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast david grant thank you so much oh it's my pleasure and you fulfill the lifeline news i actually got to talk about the knicks i could have taken over the whole podcast i had to control myself but anytime you want me to come back to rant on the knicks i'm ready to go (laughs) buddy when when we get to next season's playoffs I'm going to take you up on that deal. We're not going to talk about history one iota. It's going to be nothing but wall-to-wall Nick's gone. I'm ready to go. Robinson stuff, the return. That'll be great. Thank you, man. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. 